Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal proficiencies, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back and remain tuned in. A century and a half ago, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote that the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. There is no doubt that the UK civilization level is pretty advanced, with trustworthy legal institutions, a fair and impartial judicial system, competent and esteemed judges and lawyers. Yet, the British criminal system is crippled by failings to the extent that it has been described as broken. Without trying to undermine it further, this podcast offers to look at the prison system to understand better who constitutes the inmate population and how the system in its actual state affects them. With an astonishingly high level of violence, self-harm and suicide, the question as to whether the state dispenses its duty of care appropriately to its detainees is an important one. We will inevitably look at the system's shortcomings and the fact that it was already in jeopardy before the pandemic and at a breaking point since. But we will also talk about the attempts made to adapt it to the current situation and offer some suggestions for improvements. The detailed and thorough analysis of our guest, Vicky Price, will leave us with food for thought and essential fact to assess, if so inclined, whether the existing prison system represents the advanced civilization we live in. So let's start. Hello, Vicky. Welcome back to A Question of Law. I'm delighted to have you here again with us. Thank you so much for having me back, part two. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Vicky, this time I won't get into a lengthy introduction, as our regular listeners already know you, and I'll ask the new ones to return to episode two, in which we talked about the human rights dimension of COVID-19. Nevertheless, I'd like to mention that you have had a brilliant career as a human rights lawyer, spanning almost 25 years, during which you worked for the UN, the Council of Europe, and various governmental and non-governmental organizations. You also advised the Foreign and Commonwealth Office on human rights issues concerning prisoners abroad. 
Now established as an independent human rights consultant, you regularly publish articles and reports on human rights topics, but more significantly, you have established yourself as a reference or an authority on issues of prisoners' rights, dignity behind bars, and prison reform. Therefore, you are the perfect guest to talk to us about the criminal justice system and the life of prisoners behind bars. So, shall we start with our first question? And that is, could you give us a brief overview of the prison system in the UK? Yes, certainly. And just thank you for that very kind introduction. And it, it's a real pleasure to be back here um, in the hot seat in your um, Question of Law podcast. So, so certainly I can give you a little bit of the lay of the land in terms of the demographic here. And, and the figures that I'm giving you and the stats that I'm giving you are for England and Wales. So I should just sort of say that at the outset. So as things currently stand, there are 117 prisons in England and Wales. Mm-hmm. Now, 104 of those are run by HM Prison and the Probation Service. But we also have private uh, contractors, private companies that operate and there are three different private companies that operate 13 prisons, G4S, Sodexo and Serco. In terms of who's sitting in prison and the population, again, um, this is for England and Wales, and the figures are from the UK Ministry of Justice. So as at the 22nd of January 2021, in terms of the male population, there were 74,882, and the female prison population was much smaller at 3,148. Now, of course, that figure will will change week on week. In terms of the pre-trial remand, these figures were from 2020, um, from the World Prison Brief, there were 14.3% of the prison population was on Mm pre-trial. Just a breakdown for women, 4.1%, and that was uh, from December of 2020. And juveniles make up um, the youth offending, 0.5%. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the, of the breakdown in terms of who's sitting in prison. Mm-hmm. And what are the trends for people in prison in terms of demographics? What are the lengths of their sentences, age, life expectancy, the history, etc.? Certainly. So, so in terms of the the length of sentences, I I didn't I don't have that exact information, but there is what I can say is there's a shift towards longer sentences now. So people are in prison for longer. Um, in terms of sort of the ages of prisons, the largest number is in the sort of thirty to thirty nine age bracket, followed closely by forty to forty nine year olds and twenty five to twenty nine year olds. But what we can say and what the evidence is that you know it's an older prison population now. Mm-hmm. We're seeing older prisoners and that of course has attendant problems with it. As the sort of figures also show mainly males who are in our prison estate here. And they are people who have complex histories. They come with issues of substance abuse, low literacy, mm-hmm. homelessness. Women make up, as you've seen, a very small percentage of the prison population often in prison for petty and poverty-related crimes and shoplifting, come again with very chaotic lifestyles. Again, it's very well documented there, sort of pipeline into prison is sort of through substance abuse, be that drugs or alcohol, mental health problems, homelessness, abuse and trauma, complex mental health and psychological needs. So that's kind of the population in terms of gender breakdown. Ethnic makeup, um, ethnic minorities 
um, are often overrepresented actually in the within the prison estate. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think that's the case of, of young people in prison. More than half of young people in prison are from a BME background. British, Asian and minority background. So that's a, an issue and it has been looked at and examined in terms of, of that sort of racial discrimination point within the criminal justice system and the BME sort of element. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the sort of life expectancy is pretty low. The average age of death is about 56 years old, but there is a reason for that because people age exponentially when they go into the prison estate. It adds 10 years more or less to their life because of the poor health conditions that they come with and then the actual prison estate itself. Could you tell us what are the state obligations towards its detainees? So what is a state duty of care and what is the framework around it? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, I think the most important thing to say is that that human rights do not stop at the prison gates. Mm. So anyone who is deprived of their liberty, and I use that sort of as an umbrella term to include people who are in the prison estate, but also in police custody or in any place where they are deprived of their liberty, the state, through its agents, so through the prison staff, through the police, they have a, a responsibility to hold those people in a, in safe and in humane conditions. So um, that's a positive obligation on the states. Mm-hmm. And that sort of breaks down in terms of their health care, in terms of people's safety, in terms of their rehabilitation, in terms of, of ensuring that they are not subjected to torture and or inhuman degrading treatment or punishment. And in fact, the World Health Organization has recognised this, saying that governments have a special duty of care for those people who are in places of detention. So that's a really very fundamental positive obligation on states to protect um, an individual's life because these people are in a vulnerable position at the end of the day. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And so what is the international framework around the protection of detainees? So certainly there are a lot of international human rights law standards protecting people in prison and those who are deprived of their liberty. So looking at sort of international human rights treaties, which is where states are actually legally bound and have signed up to, for want of a better word, their obligations, there are a number of key treaties that I would mention. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights certainly speaks to this issue. There are a number of articles there that prohibit torture, cruel and inhuman degrading treatment and punishment, which extends to people who are deprived of their liberty. Also, Article 10 of that treaty calls for the humane treatment of people who are deprived of their liberty. And then a further article covers fair trial rights. Other international treaties um, include the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which looks to the right to an adequate standard of living, which includes health, food, work, education. And so, again, those will extend to people in prison. As I've kind of said in this podcast, that, that people in prison do not lose their right to health because they are in detention. The Convention Against Torture also, as the name suggests, prohibits torture and other cruel and inhuman degrading treatment or punishment, again, protects people who are deprived of their liberty. For children, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, really detention should be as a measure of last resort for children and for the shortest period of time so children not be detained if at all possible. And that's actually quite relevant in the immigration context because often children are detained. So those are international human rights treaties that states have signed up to. But there are also a group of what's called soft law standards. So those are either rules, regulations, principles, they sit under that category. States are not legally bound by them, but 
often they do have a sort of status where states should abide by them because they have been accepted universally or by the UN. So the main one is the UN Mandela Rules. The full name is the UN Standard Minimum Rules for the Treatment of Prisoners. And that's minimum standards that should be applied for people who are in prison there. And it covers all aspects of prison life, including healthcare, discipline and sanctions, contact with the outside world, access to food, to exercise. Mm -hmm. There are 122 rules within the Mandela Rules. So that's a very important sort of soft law standard. But there are also soft law standards for particular groups of prisoners. So the UN Bangkok rules are for women and they provide a gender specific lens to women's imprisonment. So, of course, you know, women who are in prison will have specific needs over and above sort of just them being in prison. So it covers things around specific healthcare needs, managing children, their needs when they actually leave prison. So those are really important standards. And then equally, we have standards for young people as well, um, what's called the Beijing Rules. Those are the UN Standard Minimum Rules for the Administration of Juvenile Justice and the RIDA Guidelines. Their full name is the UN Guidelines for the Prevention of Juvenile Delinquency. Mm -hmm. So again, both those will will look at how young people and minors in detention are treated and all the, the kind of specific needs that they have whilst they're in detention. So that's the soft law standards. What about the uh, UK framework for people in prison? Can you talk about this? So the UK framework for people in prison are are set out in the European Convention on Human Rights, which um, includes prisoners' rights. So we, as in the UK, are still a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, and those, thankfully still, um, and those are protected via the Human Rights Act of 1998. So that's how they the rights that sit within the European Convention on Human Rights kind of trickle down into our own mm-hmm. framework. And they are things like the right to life, the, the right to privacy and the right to a private life, um, respect for private life, uh, communication and correspondence. And so all of those will impact upon people in prison. So, for example, let's take the right to privacy. Well, a person in prison, their phone calls and correspondence may be monitored. But, you know, there has to be reasonable grounds for doing that. Some of the rights that sit within the European Convention on Human Rights are absolute rights and the state cannot restrict them in any circumstances. But other rights can be restricted on certain grounds. So it depends which right we're talking about. But that's where and how sort of the rights kind of flow from Europe through to the UK context. Very complete answer. Thank you very much. Now, the conditions in UK prisons have been criticised for quite some time now. Could you tell us more about the issues that the system faces? So the the main issues, really, I mean, I think we can say that, that prisons in England and Wales are really in a state of crisis. And this is something that has been sort of an issue for many years. And in fact, the European Prison Monitoring Body, which is the Committee for the Prevention of Torture, Mm -hmm. visited three prisons, three male prisons in May of 2019. That was Doncaster, Liverpool and Wormwood Scrubs. And they found that the prisons that it visited were violent, unsafe and overcrowded. So European monitoring bodies are are kind of really sort of saying it quite clearly and quite bluntly that our prison systems are in crisis. And the prison inspectorate here talks about a quote unquote healthy jail in terms of safety, respect, 
meaningful activity rehabilitation but I think we can safely say that prisons are far from healthy places that they are plagued by drugs violence poor living conditions and lack of access to rehabilitative activities Um, and prisons have seen a very poor or a significant reduction in their public spending Um, there were really deep cuts I think between 2010 2015 The number of prison officers was cut by a third. So that has an impact upon how prisons operate Mm. and how they can do what they need to do with very restricted budgets. Yes, it was a political decision to cut the prison budget. Yes, I I think definitely so. Political decision has ramifications for people who are sitting in the prison estate. Mm. Not only, I should say, people in prison, but also prison staff as well. The pressures on them, if there are fewer prison officers around, it has an impact on morale, it has an impact on safety. So it really has a real ripple effect there. But what we're seeing now is sort of the impact of those sort of budgetary cuts and the public spending and and how the prison estate manages and operates. We're also seeing overcrowding in prisons. Mm. Uh, Basically, prisons are, are holding more prisoners than they should. Often we're seeing two prisoners crammed into cells for one. Prison reformers talk about this notion of an addiction to imprisonment so instead of alternatives to prison we're seeing just people being thrown into prison and and the impacts of that the hm prison inspector in his 2018-19 report said that some prisons were 147 percent over capacity so that's a huge figure really um, to think about how sort of over capacity it is prison conditions are poor unsafe unsanitary as a matter of fact, a barrister, Ben Keith at 5SAH, explained in an article published in 2019 that a Dutch court refused an extradition request to the UK, stating that the UK prisons were inhuman and degrading. So that clearly illustrates the problem. Now, taking into account your experience in the field, would you be able to explain to us what kind of impact these conditions can have on prisoners? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's a hugely dehumanizing and inhumane experience for people who who are in prison. And, you know, that impacts in many different ways. We've seen that self-harm and suicide has increased dramatically. I heard a prison officer speak not so long ago and she said that someone in prison self-harms every 15 minutes Mm. someone in prison attempts suicide every four hours now these are real kind of shocking figures when we think about that the ministry of justice in july of last year 2020 reported record highs of self-harm incidents in the 12 months leading up to march 2020 so so suicides and self-harm are a real issue for people in prison and it's particularly an issue for women in the prison estate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the rates of self-harm are nearly five times as high in in women's prisons. So that's a real impact. There's an increase in violence. Prison is not a safe place. Mm -hmm. Levels of violence are very high. And that's assaults on prison staff, but also between prisoners themselves. So prison on prisoner violence is a, a real issue there. It's a very combustible, explosive environment. And much of that violence is linked to drugs, to debt, to poor prison conditions, Any of these things can spark off violence between prisoners or, as I say, against prison officers themselves. Mm -hmm. And also the lack of staff tends to hinder the relationship uh, guards, prisoners. Absolutely, yeah. From my reading, it seems that this is particularly important in case of women prisoners. 
Yeah, all of these things can impact there. You know, fewer prison staff on the ground there will make for a very sort of, as I say, fractious environment, definitely. Mm -hmm. And how has COVID-19 exacerbated the existing problems and maybe have created new ones? Yeah, so I think we can safely say that really COVID has actually sort of shone quite a light on an already broken system. And the impact on the criminal justice system, and I don't only say prisons, but the whole criminal justice system has right has been quite catastrophic, not only on people in prison, but on witnesses, on victims, on anyone who's kind of involved in the criminal justice system. But if we sort of drill down into people in prison particularly, COVID-19 has really proved a, a very big public health challenge in the prison estate there because people in prison who have COVID will eventually leave the prison estate and will go back into their communities. And there, of course, there's a risk that they bring um, the infection with them. But the risks are, they're a greater risk contracting it given the closed setting, given the overcrowding that I mentioned, and that they are generally in poorer health when they're in a prison environment. It's more difficult to maintain social distancing and good hygiene practices when you're in prison. But the right to health doesn't stop at the prison gates. And international human rights law basically says that people in prison or people deprived of their liberty should enjoy the same standards of health care as those in the outside world. Mm -hmm. It might be helpful for you just to have a few kind of figures around sort of how many people yeah. in the prisoner state have um, contracted it. So there are the total number of positive cases since the start of the pandemic is 4,800. Since March of 2020, 72 prisoners and people on probation have died from COVID-19 in England and Wales. So you can see there is an, an issue, there is a problem there in terms of, of mm. COVID within the prisoner state. But the real impacts are that, you know, contact with the outside world has been really, really sort of reduced. Social visits have been suspended, except for exceptional compassionate grounds. Mm -hmm. So what the prisoner state have tried to do is kind of replace it with um, video conferences and video visits. Or, um, but that hasn't always been very well managed because, you know, access to the Wi-Fi to accommodate video calls has been problematic. People in prison have spent a lot of time within their cells, 22 to 23 hours a day, mm -hmm. Is it's not uncommon. Of course, you can imagine being in a cell for that long brings with it all sorts of problems. And it's simply not humane to keep people in prison, in their cells for that long. I believe that the prison service has a performance target of about 10 hours a day for prisoners to be outside their cells. Is that right? Well, the, what sort of international standards mm -hmm. say is that they, well, in terms of that actually exercise, that they should have at least an hour of exercise a day. But, but certainly, um, I'm not sure what the sort of mandated requirement is here in for prisons in England and Wales. But, but they should be out of their cells for longer than what they have now. You know, what I've been reading and seeing is that they're out of their cells for 30 minutes a day, and which is pretty much solitary confinement. Yeah, and that very important association time is is limited. But not only that, you know, access to rehabilitative activities and vocational activities and leisure activities has all been stopped during the pandemic. Where we are now in January 2021, whether any of that has resumed, I'm not sure, but I suspect probably not. Or it's very, very limited in terms of, of what they can do outside. But, but all of that has an impact on mental health, obviously, because they, they can't see their family um, and they can't sort of engage in, 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 in educational rehabilitation activities. 
And some of these rehabilitation activities are actually necessary for some of them to be released. It certainly would help and benefit their release, absolutely, if they can sort of skill up mm. and gain those skills that they need to find employment when they leave the prison gates. I mean, that's really important because then the risk of reoffending and recidivism is higher if, they, if they're not skilled, if they don't have the skills necessary to sort of to move into work. So absolutely, it's just kind of making it more of a risk that they will go back into the criminal justice system again if they don't have you know, good skills. Yes, absolutely. And there was already before COVID-19 a serious backlog of cases in the Crown Court, but this has greatly worsened with the pandemic. No, absolutely. I mean, there, there has been a significant backlog of cases because, of course, when lockdown hit back in March of last year, the courts were closed from late March of 2020 through to mid-May of 2020. So what we've seen now are the courts and sort of the, the wider criminal justice system trying to accelerate sort of digital justice to ensure that the system can continue. So how have they been doing this? Well, they've been introducing virtual prison visits. The police have taken statements over the phone or video calls. The courts themselves have rolled out video platforms and tried to improve prisoner video links and virtual courts so that justice can continue even in the midst of a pandemic. That has worked, I believe, on a sort of sort of variable basis. I think it's worked better in some places than others. And, and I think there are sort of hiccups and, and problems in rolling that out. But that's how they've tried to deal with this backlog in cases. And now very recently, we're sitting here recording this in January 2021. I did see that, you know, the courts are opening up again. So of course, that's now going to have an impact on people going into the prison system as well. So I think that there has definitely been a, issues around sort of fair trial and just getting cases through the system. And according to a BBC article, it seems that some of these cases have been planned to be heard in 2022, but others have already been pushed back to 2023. And that may well be so absolutely that they've had to try and, you know, they've just had to sort of cases into the long grass and, and schedule them for later in the year because, you know, we're in such a, an uncertain waters and an uncharted territory. But, you know, at the same time, we don't want justice to be slowed because justice, slow justice is justice denied, basically. And individuals and people in prison have the, the right to a, a fair trial. And that means a sort of speedy trial as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a difficult one to, to juggle, actually, and, and to manage. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So taking into account your experience in the field, if we were to rethink the prison system as a whole in order to improve conditions inside the prisons, better prepare prisoners for the outside world, avoid recidivism, what do you think should be done differently? Absolutely. Well, I think the kind of main thing to say is that I think there needs to be a shift about the way that we think about prisoners because, or people in prison because there's a lot of emphasis on the punishment element but not enough on the rehabilitation. Yeah. So I think that needs to be the starting point. There are obviously sort of real tangible fixes that, that need to be done, like you know, practical things like reducing overcrowding, fixing the crumbling prison estate, improving staff retention, managing the drug problem. We didn't sort of mention that, that drug problem is a, is a very sort of serious problem within the prison's estate. But these are tangible things that need to be done. But then there's a wider conversation about how, how many people we lock up and for how long and, and why we lock them up. So things around short prison sentences. So there's 
a lot of people who are in prison on very short prison sentences. And, and that kind of revolving door often means that people will lose their job, their family ties, their house, and it, it's not always effective in actually reducing reoffending. So there's been some discussion about that in 2019. There was some sort of discussion about replacing short sentences with more robust community orders. And the Justice Secretary was kind of looking at that as a possible option. So that's one tangible thing that could be looked at. There's also something around building more prisons, whether that is actually the right way forward. So again, the government has committed to building more prisons, actually, for people in prison. But prison doesn't always work for many people. You know, it's not a place necessarily for people who've got mental health problems. It's not the place for people who've got drug problems. So there's the real issue around that. So maybe we should be looking at alternatives to prison. So looking at sort of early interventions and tackling the, the drivers um, and the factors that bring people to prison. So poverty, trauma, lack of opportunity, these kind of things it should be a sort of more of a priority than they are. And then looking at, as I said before, their sort of community sentences. And, and that's particularly for women. Is prison always the right place for women? Starting to think about, you know, alternatives for detention there. Mm. Should we be imprisoning women because they simply have a chaotic lifestyle, drug addiction and things like that? And often their offences are low level and non-violent. So should we be thinking about diverting them away from the whole prosecution sort of journey and looking at the root causes of their offending? So, mm -hmm. so those are a few things that I think are in the mix or should be in the mix in terms of looking forward. But I hope very much that COVID-19 does provide that space and that lens through which we look at the the wider criminal justice system um, as, it, as it fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there are consequences for children too when their parents, and I would say in particular their moms, mm -hmm. go to prison and they are three times apparently more likely mm -hmm. to engage in antisocial behavior themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to think about in terms of the whole system approach and handing the cycle of violence going down one generation to the other. Absolutely. For children, there, there is a real impact, sort of mental health impacts. Of course, you know, what, where are they going to live? Who are they going to live with whilst their mum is in um, in prison? Mm. So that has a, a real cycle. And in fact, you know, as you say there, they might well sort of engage in criminal behaviour and, and things like that. So I think definitely it has a, a ripple effect for women who have children in prison there. So as I say there, I I don't always think that prison is the best place for women. And there are so many different alternatives for them in terms of their sentencing, etc. Yes, perfect. Okay, now I'd like to talk about what you do when you're not researching or writing reports on human rights issues. You are part of a community called Human Rights Pulse. And you are also a podcaster yourself, and your podcast has a specific purpose. So could you talk to us about both of these activities? Yes, absolutely. Well, well Human Rights Pulse is a, it's a wonderful kind of community of mainly sort of young human rights professionals, and it's an online platform that brings together human rights practitioners, policymakers, campaigners and students to really raise awareness of current human rights issues. Mm. And what we're looking to do as a community is to make human rights discussions really more accessible, engaging and practical. And the community that's part of Human Rights Pulse will write about human rights issues that are not necessarily out there in the public discourse or, or are kind of, you know, the stories that we don't usually hear or often hear. Mm. I'm involved with them 
in the kind of mentoring and careers context. So I've helped to curate their mentoring pages and their careers pages. And as you rightly say, I, I'm also a podcaster myself. It's something that I learned to do during during lockdown. It was my kind of little skills skilling up. But I have a, a podcast series called The Passion Factor, Pursuing a Career in Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And what I was keen to do was I was keen to interview mid-career and senior human rights professionals about their own human rights career, the ups and the downs and the challenges that they faced as they started out in their own human rights career, but also to offer really practical and meaningful advice to the younger generation, be it students or early career professionals about their own career, which, you know, will, I hope, be of use to them. So as you say, yes, I've interviewed people in the UN, at Human Rights Watch, in the not-for-profit sector, here at the English Bar. And I'm always on the hunt for interesting guests who would like to come on the show. But really, it's a place and space where they can talk about their own career, but offer really practical, meaningful advice to the younger generation. Mm -hmm. To come back to the mentoring role that you have with Human Rights, Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. completely independently, Could you tell us more about the services that you offer? So this is something that I've done for, gosh, 10 plus years, I suspect, that I genuinely care and want to support the younger generation of human rights professionals as they start out in their career. Mm -hmm. And I do this because we, as human rights professionals, and as you say there, I have sort of 24 plus years experience under my belt, you know, we had a little support and advice when we started out. So for me, it feels like it's time to sort of pay it back and, and to do what we can to help. So, so yeah, so I, I help and support and mentor young human rights professionals. And I do that on a one-to-one basis. So pre-COVID, I was doing it in person, but now of course it's all online. And I will meet with young professionals online and talk to them about, you know, what are their career aspirations? Where do they see themselves in the human rights world? And also give some sort of really tangible support around sort of their cover letter, their CV. Also, if they're looking to, if they've got a job interview coming up, helping them in preparing for that job interview. All with a kind of human rights lens, obviously, through it. Because, you know, you can give very generic careers advice, right? But this is quite specific for a human rights kind of career. And having been through it myself, and still, even now, sort of sitting here, I I have to go through interviews, I have to go through that pain as well. If I can help and support them, then I will do it. Wow, fantastic things to do. Now, I'd like to ask you, how do you deal with the disturbing facts or emotionally draining things that, as a human rights lawyer, you must have seen or written about? So how do you protect yourself against this emotional burden? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a really important question and that whole that whole piece around self-care and how we look after ourselves as human rights professionals is so important now. And, and I think it's becoming much more of a conversation within our sector as human rights professionals. I mean, from my personal perspective, yes, absolutely. I I have seen and heard sort of some really kind of horrific stories. As an immigration and asylum lawyer, I represented asylum seekers who were coming to the UK and were fleeing pretty awful situations back at home. And they told me, gave me their testimony. um, And it was, you know, sexual violence, female genital mutilation, stories of torture. And that can't help but impact you you know as we receive that information there so that was very difficult and I think after six and a half years I was ready to move on from that when I was at the foreign office I was advising 
Foreign Office staff on any human rights issues affecting British nationals detained overseas. And that, Mm -hmm. again, was death penalty cases, torture, mistreatment cases. But one case that I think I would like to share is of a British national who was of Algerian extraction, went back to Algeria and went on hunger strike. He was picked up by the authorities because he had a political profile, went um, on hunger strike and died under my watch whilst I was a human rights advisor. And that case kind of still lives with me now. But the wonderful thing there, the silver lining there, was that we had a counsellor at the Foreign Office who we could go to. Mm-hmm. I used her services and I went to her and I talked through that case and it helped me to kind of process and digest that case and to, to understand my role in it. Mm-hmm. So my message there is, you know, human rights professionals do need to have professionals who help them, actually, with the work we do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more difficult, I suppose, now as an independent human rights consultant, because it's just me, myself and I doing that. But uh, currently I'm working on, on documenting human rights violations in Belarus, which is very, very harrowing stuff. And I do have the option of looking at some raw material, which is videos and photographs of what happened in Belarus around the time of the election. But I've chosen not to look at that material for this very reason to kind of protect myself from that. What I do do in my spare time to kind of offload and sort of disengage if I spend time and this is going to sound crazy but you know just watching really rubbish tv <laughs> I understand what you mean just to kind of take take my mind off what I've been doing in the day and, and watching something just to take my brain out actually mm-hmm. and just to sort of you know try to sort of I can't you can never forget I suppose fundamentally but just to kind of take a step away from it Having a good network of friends and family around is really important. I have a little uh, niece and some nephews who I see as much as I can, in, even in, in COVID times if I can, and, and, and talk to them and, and stuff. And So I think we need to take good care of ourselves to do our work well. Yes, most definitely. We've now reached my last question, and that is, what attributes do you think a human rights lawyer should have? So, yeah, this is really uh, important, and I, I think... Fundamentally, I mean, there are a few things I'd like to say here, but I think the first and foremost is Mm -hmm. you need to have a passion for this work. You need to care deeply about the work that you do, because for those very reasons that I've just articulated, that that the work is hard and tough and draining. And so you need to really care about the work that you do. And it needs to be the driver for the work that you do. So a passion for human rights and for justice. More practically, I think you need to be knowledgeable and know your subject matter well mm-hmm. and be well versed in what your particular area is and know all there is to know about it yeah. you need to be robust and tenacious mm-hmm. um, robust and tenacious in two senses firstly because we're dealing with government and governments are not always going to listen to what we say and in fact they'll push back as much as they can mm-hmm. so we need to kind of be tenacious in our message and robust because we are dealing with difficult things and, and we might be in difficult parts of the world where we're in a, a conflict zone or a post-conflict zone and we might not have creature comforts if we're sitting in a, a container somewhere in a far from place. So we, we need to have that. Language has also helped. So I think that's a really practical thing. It opens up lots of doors for you in terms of where your human rights work can take you. So having a good sort of language sets helps. Having a good eye for detail And I think, you know, that really is important there because you're dealing with fine detail of things. If you're taking someone's testimony, if you're representing someone at court, you need to know the the fine detail of your case. And also being optimistic as well. I know that we're dealing with such dark, difficult things, but actually having an optimism. Sometimes I call it blind faith when I'm thinking about 
the work that I do, that we can make change. It will be incremental. It will be small. But if we see those small changes, that change will come. We can't sort of see an end to torture overnight, but we can maybe see some legislation Mm -hmm. that criminalizes torture or something like that. So those are the things I would say. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much, uh, Vicky, for this complete answer and another really good one, among the others. Uh, Before we let you go, would you like to share your contact details with the audience? Yes, certainly. So if you want to sort of reach me or find out more about me and what I do, there are several ways you can do that through my website, which is www.vickypraise.com. I'm also on LinkedIn under my own name. I do have Twitter and my handle is at Vicky Praise or one string. Um, I wouldn't say Instagram is the best way to contact me because I'm not a big Instagram person. But yeah, through Twitter, LinkedIn and my website is really the best way to reach me. That should be enough. So Vicky, you have provided us with a very clear overview of the prison system in the UK. You've given us your opinion on its flaws and lots of food for thoughts for a reform of the whole system. So thank you very much for coming back to this podcast and for sharing your experience, your knowledge and your advice with us again. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.